Hello, church family. Uh, welcome to our uh, midweek Bible study here in Logos Ministry. Uh, I hope you had an insightful and encouraging time with your group uh, you know, as you went through the exegesis of God's Word. Our passage for tonight is the continuation from the first, first chapter uh, in 1 Timothy, uh, which is the second half of that chapter, um, and it's in um, the verses uh, 12 to 20. Uh, just a quick reminder that the theme of uh, Log uh, Logos this year is the is God's high calling for uh, our church, uh, God's high calling of leadership and discipleship in the local church. You know, um, our discipleship and uh, fellowship cannot happen if we don't see each other. So uh, our leadership team um, has a request for you guys. Uh, we would like uh, to request everyone to turn on your camera uh, as an encouragement and to enable a greater sense of fellowship mm -hmm. with one another. Uh, maybe you've seen uh, Terrence post on Facebook, and I think it's going to be a good time uh, for us to um, you know, just see one another. But of course, we understand if you are sick or if you, know, uh, if you don't have any camera, uh, we understand. So that's okay. No worries. Uh, as much as you can, if you can turn on your camera, um, please go ahead. Uh, just to give you uh, an overview of the order of worship uh, for tonight, uh, Garrett and I will open up in a word of prayer. And then uh, we have uh, something unique. We will have four uh, people who will be sharing tonight. Um, two will be coming, uh, two uh, individuals from, um, you know, um, who attended the ACBC conference will be sharing. Uh, ACBC stands for uh, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Uh, Clarence and Anna will be sharing. And the next two will be uh, Jonathan uh, Park and Emily Toe, uh, and they'll be sharing what they've learned from the exegesis um, um, of your word. I don't know if, was that an echo or something? Or, um, all right. Sorry, my, uh, my wife just, uh, they just finished their group. And so there was like this echo. Um, um, and then Pastor Mark will be teaching from 1 Timothy uh, 12 to 20. And after that, we will have closing announcements. And, uh, and lastly, you are free to uh, stay in Zoom. We will have, um, you know, just a short icebreaker, um, you know, just a popcorn style icebreaker so that everyone will be uh, encouraged by that. Uh, with that said, uh, Garrett, are you here? Um, would you start us with uh, the opening prayer? Sure, let's pray. Lord, we're grateful to be able to uh, gather here tonight. Uh, we come uh, together because you are worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our praise because you are our creator. You are the sustainer of the universe. Uh, you uphold it by the word of your power. And uh, you have loved us and adopted us into your family by uh, sending Christ into the world uh, as a substitute for our sins. And you've shown us mercy and grace um, in Christ. And we're thankful for this message of the gospel that salvation is by your grace alone uh, through faith. Uh, that it's not of our own doing, uh, but it is your gift to us. And that's something that we rejoice in, that we uh, take joy in and, and place our hope in Christ alone. And as we come to your word tonight, would you help us to 
have humble hearts. Uh, would your spirit work within us uh, to convict us by your word? Uh, show us where we fall short and encourage us in our walks with you. And we trust that uh, your word would do its, its work tonight and uh, that Christ would be honored in our time we have with one another. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Father, uh, as we reflect upon the precious gospel of Christ in tonight's teaching, uh, may we have humble and teachable hearts uh, continue to sanctify us to remove any uh, pride or uh, any lack of faith in our hearts. Um, open the eyes of our hearts so that we may know you, that we may know Christ even more. And that, that this would uh, sweetly uh, translate to an ever-increasing love and trust in our Savior. And so that we would repent of our sins as well. What areas in our lives that we need to grow in. May you reveal that to us as well. And by the power of your Spirit, may your word richly dwell in our hearts with thanksgiving and praise to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so for our sharing tonight, um, as you know, Pastor Mark would always say that, um, or not always say, but he would say that uh, the epistles are like biblical counseling letters. Uh, and speaking of biblical counseling, uh, recently we had about 20 members who attended the digital conference of the ACBC, um, this biblical counseling conference. And as I've said earlier, ACBC stands for the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. And we've asked uh, two uh, members to share with us what they have learned from the conference. Um, Clar Clarence and Anna, are you there? You might be on mute. Um, Clarence, Anna? <laughs> are you able to hear us? All right, yeah, now we can hear you. All right. Okay, great. Um, so, yeah, we were asked to share about uh, our time at ACBC, and I think it was uh, just a huge blessing to be able to participate in it and to um, be under the shepherding of um, many godly men. And uh, what I wanted to specifically highlight for tonight was Philip DeCourcy's and uh, John MacArthur's messages. Um, uh, DeCourcy's message was on Christ's supremacy over the de demonic, uh, mainly um, going over the attributes and the positions of Christ versus Satan. And I think this was a huge encouragement to me. Um, uh, as the theme was on destroying strongholds, on um, biblical counseling and spiritual warfare, something that we're all uh, familiar with now, as, especially as we uh, finished off Ephesians 6 from the end of last year. And so, um, you know, we, we started off with talking about uh, uh, what spiritual warfare is, which is destroying ungodly ideas, and it's uh, pulling down ideologies that are raised up against the knowledge of God in order to bring every thought captive to, to Christ. And so um, he talked about uh, uh, Satan, that um, you know, he is our adversary that is formidable, intelligent, and crafty, and resourceful. 
Um, however, he is also limited and he's also defeated and accountable to God. And so it's uh, really uh, defining the scope of who he is. He's God's devil. He's not a second God and he's not the opposite of God. And he's not as powerful as he may want us to think he is. Um, only God has a power that uh, Satan claims that he may have. And so um, in relation to counseling, uh, we need to remind ourselves that uh, for both ourselves and for the counselee that we have a commander in chief who is always leading us in triumph uh, and that the weapons of our warfare uh, are strong enough to pull down the strongholds and that uh, we might stand in the evil day with the gospel impact. And so when we speak of the devil, uh, uh, it's it would be encouraging to both ourselves and to the church that we highlight uh, God's pos position of how great God is and that Christ is preeminent and that the gospel is triumphant and that Satan is much smaller than that. Um, and we also need to remind ourselves that there are uh, two great powers at work in the world, which is the unlimited power of God and also the limited power of Satan. And so if you... Uh, in counseling, if you feel oppressed by the evil one, um, you know, we, it's simply just a matter of having a big view of Christ, um, who's able to weaken the knees of demons, and he's able to bind Satan, and um, he's able to deliver uh, all those that are taken captive by Satan's will. Um, and we know that Christ is supreme over uh, the, demo the demonic. He is Lord. Um, and then this ties into... Uh, you know, some highlights that I found from MacArthur's uh, message, which is thinking biblically about how Jesus handled uh, the spiritual warf warfare. And uh, MacArthur was mainly pulling from uh, Luke chapter 4, where Satan is tempting Christ uh, for 40, 40 days straight. And um, so MacArthur was, uh, you know, first reminding us that uh, only Christ is able to engage with demons directly because he's the only one that has power over them. Uh, we, we see that in Mark 5 when he's uh, uh, encountered with uh, the, the, the man that was possessed by uh, the demons named Legion. Um, and in contrast, uh, we as humans can only engage them uh, indirectly by bringing the truth uh, to bear upon their lives. And so we know that the weapon that we have is the word of God. And uh, so that's the same thing that Jesus did in Luke chapter four. He dealt with the temptations uh, that uh, are, uh, that are uh, said in uh, the word of God. And what Satan does is he's tempting Jesus by uh, saying things to him that are also from scripture that seems right, but are slightly off. And so he's, he said things like, it's right for the Son of God to eat, or uh, it's right for him to take the authority and glory that he deserves in the world uh, to prove his deity uh, by diving off the temple and being carried by angels. And so there's a lot of subtleties in the temptations that Satan brings to us for what may appear to be right or even deserved. Um, and you might... Uh, think these things are right for you because they're measures of success or earthly possessions, uh, relationships, blessings, money, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, 
but we see that Christ uh, dealt with these temptations uh, by being prepared. Uh, he's full of the Spirit, um, which is something that uh, we as believers uh, are also have. We have the Spirit within us. And so um, MacArthur went through several temptations, specific temptations from, uh, from this chapter, which is that um, he wants... Uh, he, he was tempting Christ to distrust the love that God had for him. Uh, he was saying that uh, since he's the son of God, you know, you have the right to create bread and to satisfy his hunger because, you know, Christ didn't eat for 40 days. And so as man, he had to have been hungry. And so he was uh, telling Christ that, you know, if, if God really loved you, if the father really loved you, then he wouldn't let you uh, starve. He wouldn't let you be hungry. And so, the temptation is that, you know, we, we want to grab something ourselves. We want to snatch something rather than waiting patiently for God to provide it for us. Um, we're tempted to distrust the love that God has for us uh, when we don't have something that we think we need. And uh, so we, we, we see throughout this whole chapter that Satan had terrible theology. You know, he was quoting scripture, but he was just using it improperly. Uh, whereas we see uh, Christ is responding back with more scripture, uh, obviously with uh, the right interpretation and the right usage. And so uh, he's demonstrating the perfect trust and obedience to the love that God has for him. And he affirms that God loves him. Um, and so uh, there's a path that God wanted for Christ to take, uh, but Satan is trying to that because he doesn't want uh, Christ to go to the cross, which uh, would mean that he would conquer sin and death. Um, we see later on that uh, Satan is also tempting Christ to distrust God's plan um, by, uh, by uh, tempting him to end his humiliation. Um, and, we, uh, and he's also tempting uh, Christ to distrust uh, God's process, which involves the humiliation. And so... Um, we see time and time again that uh, Christ was triumphant by uh, knowing the scripture, by believing it, by loving it, applying it, and uh, rightly interpreting it. Um, and we, uh, for for us as uh, as sinners, uh, we have the promise from First Corinthians ten that uh, no temptation is uh, unique to man, um, but it's common to everyone. Uh, and that uh, it's not anything, but the, the, the trials that are given to us isn't more than we can handle. And so the overall purpose of this is to build your endurance. And so uh, he shows us the temptation to avoid, uh, or Satan shows us the temptation um, that we, uh, to avoid the things that God has planned for us. And so uh, we often don't want to face the humiliation, uh, but we, uh, we know that in suffering and, and obedience, uh, even though it will involve humiliation, it's the path to glory, which is the hope that we have. I'm just going to share about an overview and a couple takeaways from the conference. Um, the conference was really encouraged by the leaders for us to attend. Uh, multiple times from multiple different leaders we were encouraged, and I'm really thankful that they did because you know, it was a really encouraging time. So it took place on Monday and Tuesday. So Clarence and I took off work for it. And we had the opportunity to either do it in person 
either at Ted or Teddy's place or um, virtually. And so Clarence and I opted to go to their homes and it was such a sweet time, right? I, I was at first I thought, well, we're just gonna be watching the same screen. How profitable can it be to come together and just stare at the same screen? It was very profitable because afterwards we got to share any questions we might have and things that we're encouraged by, minor highlights that maybe one of us skipped over. And I'm so thankful that we had the opportunity um, just to come together to have fellowship over the same teaching and sitting over it. A couple, um, or sitting under it, a couple of takeaways that I had were, you know, who does Satan target? And a couple of those targets that he would go for are the head of the church, so that's Christ. And we see that when Satan had Herod kill all the babies, uh, or the male babies, and um, another target that he has is the gospel. Another target is the mission of the church, which is making disciples. And uh, another one that was given a good analogy for was in an army, who do you want to take down? You want to take down the one who's giving instruction to somebody else or to the rest of the men. And so for our church, it's going to be the pastor, Mark, Pastor Mark and the elders. And so for that reason, we need to be praying for them wholeheartedly that they would stand up against the thwarts of Satan um, because Satan is, the devil is a prowling lion waiting for someone to devour and we need to be constantly praying for them. Someone else that uh, was highlighted was the husbands and the fathers in the church because they are the head of each family. So for example, if Satan took out Clarence, he would be taking out both himself, who serves in different ministries, ministers to me, and his encouragement to hopefully many of you, and myself. And so that would take down multiple people. And if we, if someone had children, you would take down them. And it would be, um, you just need to take down a leader to take down multiple forces. Um, some strategies that Satan has would be to de-emphasize sin, but rather to emphasize your discouragement or to being discouraged or even your own suffering rather than sin. But some strategies for us to battle in this spiritual warfare is to abide in Christ, to pursue purity, to not have distance with God and others, and to diligently study, meditate, and apply God's word. And so a challenge um, for you guys and also for myself is what provisions are you making for your flesh? Um, and just listing those and taking those out as well. That's it. All right. Uh, thank you, Clarence and Anna. Now we move uh, to the group shares. Uh, Jonathan Park from Kevin Al's group. And then Nexus Emily Toe from Becky's group. Okay, Jonathan, the floor is yours. All right. Hi, everyone. Um, all right. So our group met together um, you know, like last night, and we were able to discuss the passage. And so the main idea that I took from uh, our meeting yesterday, going over the passage, 
is that there is a direct connection between the doctrine that we believe in and um, the lives that we live in light of that. And uh, in this passage, we saw it in two specific ways. So the first way is just the um, just the contrast between um, the humility of Paul versus the pride of the false leaders. Uh, for Paul, um, because he holds to the true doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, it leads him to be humble. Um, despite the fact that he's a chosen apostle, he, um, he recognizes himself as the foremost of sinners. Um, so just understanding just, um, just what the gospel really means and just how it's for, how it's for those who know that they are sinners and that they can't um, do anything of their own merit to save themselves, it leads them to be more humble. Um, but on the contrast, you know, the false teachers, uh, whatever doctrine they're teaching, it's not leading them to be humble. Rather, it's puffing them up with knowledge and um, pride as a result of it. So that's one way we see it. And then um, in the other way, in verse 19, uh, Paul charges Timothy to hold faith and to hold a good conscience. So our group discussed what um, what those two phrases mean. And we came to the conclusion that, that holding faith means to hold to the true doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul had, uh, and also um, holding a good conscience means to live our lives in a way that's consistent with that faith we hold. So in summary, there is a direct connection between the doctrine we believe in and the lives that we live in light of it. Okay, uh, Emily? Our group um, also discussed um, what I think about Paul's testimony and um, overall the true gospel that um, Jesus came to save sinners. Um, and our group made the observation that in verse 12, Paul starts off by thanking God and Acknowledging that it was all God's work instead of his own, um, especially if he repeats multiple times that he was formerly a blasphemer, um, he was foremost or chief of sinners, um, and yet he still received mercy from God and was appointed by God for service. Um, and um, that this is the only true gospel, um, seeing that in verse uh, 15, that is deserving of full acceptance. Um, and even in verse 17, um, where it points out that um, there's only one God. Um, and then we also noted that verse 18, Paul reiterates his charge that he had mentioned in verse 3 and um, also verse 5. Um, and then we ended our discussion talking through verse 20, where Paul mentions that he handed over um, Tina to Satan. Um, and we um, that in verse 20, um, when Paul says he handed over men to Satan, um, we talked through some examples um, of other um, men who had similar um, examples, such as Job, who was a believer, um, and he was tested by God. Um, we also talked through church discipline, where it can be God's discipline out of love 
um, but with a goal of hope and restoration. Um, but uh, in the end, we still say we see this as um, an interpretive challenge. So we are excited for Pastor Mark's teaching. No pressure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan and Emily for sharing. Yes, I'm also excited for Pastor Mark's sharing. No pressure, Pastor Mark. So uh, I, now we transition to the teaching time. Uh, it's all yours, Pastor Mark. It's all mine. Okay. Um, so we're in First Timothy 1, 12 through 20. And this passage is really the key to the whole book. And arguably, you could even say, First and Second Timothy, in many ways, this this particular passage is the engine and the compass for everything. It's a theological anchor. It's it's huge, and uh, honestly, this was a really, really, really tough passage for me. There are these moments where Paul brings everything together in several verses, and it's like a a, a nuclear bomb. It's just intense. There's so much theologically that's packed in. Uh, some of these key pivotal passages, which anchor together all of his epistles. And this is one of them. And it was just, I have to tell you personally, it was really, really, really tough for me. And I was thankful to be able to go through it multiple, multiple times. So uh, probably a good way for us to start um, would be to ask the Lord to help us understand this. You know, as part of our Logos Bible study, our focus and emphasis here is really on understanding God's word in the way he intended and the way he wants us to understand it, not just as a, as I would say, a medical textbook or a, or a newspaper or just a source of information. And it's passages like these where you will see you really do need the Holy Spirit's work and his help in order to uh, understand and, and grasp and receive all that the Lord has in store. But the upside is it, it will humble us, but it will also enrich us to an incredible degree. So um, with that, maybe Kevin, would you just ask the Lord to help us in our time of study? Sure thing. Father God, we come before you and we acknowledge, Lord, that um, your truth is something that is revealed to us. It's not something that we come to and we understand by our own intellect, Lord, but it is something that you reveal to us and you help us to understand um, and not just in a way where we can explain the different um, parts of speech and the different meanings of words, Lord, but it, you give us understanding in a way that changes our lives and helps us to, to receive it as the very words of God, Lord. And the, these words are meant to change us. These words are meant to encourage us. These words are meant to convict us, Lord. And, and these words are meant to draw us closer to you um, as a individually, but also as a church and as your people. So, Father, would you be with us tonight? Would you help Mark as he um, um, opens up the word with us? And would you help each of us, um, and Stephen, as we're listening from our own homes, Lord, to just have attention um, but also to be submitted to what your word says and what it means for us as a church and what it means for us as individuals, Lord. So thank you so much, Lord, again, for the opportunity that we have to even sit under the teaching of your word. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You're on mute, Pastor Mark. Okay, there you go. 
That's why I need technical support. Thank you, JC. Thomas, Thomas, can you read this passage for all of us? And while Thomas does that, I'm going to try and share my screen. But if you could read 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 20, is that doable? Yes. So 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 20. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithfully, pointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that I in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were invisible, who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. This I charge, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and the good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I had have handed over to Satan, that they may not learn to blaspheme. Thanks, Thomas. <laughs> Appreciate that. Uh, Tim and Steve, I wonder if, are you able to uh, help me share screen since um, I'm not a host? And... Uh, um, oh, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Yeah, you should be able to now. Can you try again? Let's see. We're good. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, sorry about that. Thanks. I'm, I'm submitted to your authority. That works out well. <laughs> We're good. Let's see if we can get going here. Um, thank you for your patience. Okay. Tonight will be a little bit different, slightly different from our past evening. This is Logos and our conviction and our belief from the testimony of God's word is that uh, the word of God is God breathed. And it's been given to us so that we can know the Lord who has saved us. And so we can understand what he requires of us and so that we can be empowered and strengthened to live the life that he has saved us for and called us to live. And so part of that process tonight, we're going to look at really, you know, as Hebrews would say, to pay close attention, to really pay close attention to the words, to really understand what exactly is the Lord trying to communicate to us in this crazy 21st century America. And that's um, this passage in particular, I think you're going to find, at least I did anyways, just incredibly helpful and encouraging. And the question for us tonight is, how are we going to live this word? And so what you've done in your exegesis time together, gathering together in your discipleship groups is hopefully looking at this passage and considering one of the things we have to consider, what's its context? Where in the story of First Timothy does this passage, uh, the passage that Thomas just read, where does it fit in? Last time we met, we talked about where First Timothy fits in, in the whole biblical story from Genesis to Revelation, and how it comes at the end of the Apostle Paul's epistles, and it comes 
at the end of the Apostle Paul's, closer to the end, at least, of his life. Second uh, Timothy is probably the last epistle that he wrote while he's in prison, waiting, most likely to have his head cut off by Nero. Okay, And so the apostolic ministry, the ministry of those men who Christ had called, who he had revealed himself to after his resurrection, and who he had commissioned to lay the foundation for the church and write the New Testament, the area of those men is starting to come to an end. That's where this epistle fits in in the story. It, it is coming in this transition. The church age has begun, but it's just getting started, and it's about to be handed off to men who have not seen the resurrected Jesus, but who have been saved and come up under the apostles' ministry. And uh, as with all of these epistles, the first chapter, typically the introduction, lays the foundation for everything else that's going to come. And Paul, usually in a nutshell in these first chapters, it's really like the blueprint or DNA of everything that's going to follow. He gives you the big picture of where he's going to start and where he's going to end. And in the middle, it's in really the middle of this introduction that we come to a presentation of the gospel, a presentation of the gospel where Paul talks about the gospel, how it's transformed his life personally, and then how this gospel, this same gospel that's transformed his life personally, is the same gospel that Jesus is using to care for the church. How does Jesus love us? Well, he doesn't love us just by saving us. He loves us the entirety of our life and the entirety of the church one way with his gospel, okay? The gospel is not just what gets us into the door of the church. It's what takes care of us and sanctifies us and watches over us and, and is the ministry of Christ's love to us the entirety of our lives until we see Jesus face to face, okay? Because the gospel, as John Piper would say, is Jesus, okay? It's a reflection of all he is. And so when we look at where this passage comes in the epistle of Timothy, if you'll walk through with me on the um, PowerPoint, verses one and two begins with the apostolic greeting. Okay, the apostolic greeting, which is at the beginning of the epistles, Paul explaining who he is, who the author is, and who he's writing to. And that this letter is coming by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our Lord. That this is not just Paul talking to his friends. He's speaking the word of Christ. He's acting as Jesus Christ's spokesperson to the church, and he's speaking the words of Christ, the apostolic greeting. And last time we came together, we talked about authorial intent. Well, what's, these are our observations. What exactly is the message that God is trying to communicate to the church and to us? Well, you know, what I summarized it with was that Christ Jesus cares about who commands his church, who leads. That's one of the reasons Paul goes to the lengths he does at these greetings at the very beginning. He wants to make it exceptionally clear to everybody in the church in Ephesus and everybody who reads this letter, this is coming from Christ's authority. This is not just a man writing these words for you to consider an opinion. This is authoritative. And everything that comes in this letter, unlike other letters, needs to be obeyed and needs to be followed and needs to be considered because it's coming from Christ himself. And, and it shows Christ cares about who speaks on his behalf and Christ cares who leads the church. And that's why he refers to Timothy as my true child of the faith, okay? Uh, it's not just anybody who is given 
the privilege of speaking on Christ's behalf and leading. Okay, so verses one and two is the apostolic greeting. Verses three and four is the apostolic charge or command. Okay, the one that you're familiar with where uh, Paul comes and gives this opening command that really consumes the entirety of the letter, which is, uh, Timothy, tell these men who are teaching false doctrine, tell them to cut it out, tell them to step down, stay in Ephesus, don't run away because they're beating Timothy up, okay, they're discrediting him, they're discrediting the Apostle Paul, they're trying to get them out of the way, and they're trying to promote their own teaching and promote their own following, and there's some suggestion that these men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, may have been deacons or elders in the church, okay, and that they were really trying to promote their own teaching in the church. And uh, the apostolic charge is because this teaching is contrary to the teaching or sound words of Jesus Christ, uh, Timothy, you got to get in there and shut these men down. These men need to be corrected. Um, and similar to Hymenaeus and Alexander who get put out of the church. Okay. This is the apostolic charge. And the Apostle Paul explains the apostolic charge. Why does he want to do this? Because he wants to secure power for himself and because Paul wants to be the man? No. You know, all that Paul got from being the man was getting whipped, put in jail, and getting disrespected and being treated terribly by the churches that he had loved and given his life for. When you read through Acts and you read through uh, his epistles. You know, Paul is not doing this for personal gain. In fact, everything that Paul does ends up by the world standards in him losing. Okay. Uh, the point that he is making is that Christ cares about what is taught. And the only thing that is to be taught is what agrees with the sound words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What we teach should be Jesus words. What we live should be Jesus life. What we do for others needs to be what Christ commands this is his church, okay? And so he's laying that foundation and he's essentially saying to Timothy, Timothy, you need to take back the church. You're kind of getting a little bit soft and a little bit weak. You're allowing them to bully and intimidate you. They're, you're allowing them to push you around by all these attacks that they're making, that you're not a good enough speaker, that you're too young to be in leadership, that, that you know, Paul, the man who you serve is self-interested, all of these different slanders that they're using to take you out of the picture, but really what they're doing is they're attacking Christ and his gospel. And you need to step up because you're coming with Christ's authority, which is greater than their authority, and you need to take back the church, the apostolic charge, okay? We're alluding to this, but as we get to verse 5 through 11 of chapter 1, Paul explains why he has given Timothy this apostolic charge. This is Christ's command to Timothy. Timothy, remain and charge certain men not to teach these other doctrines. Why? Well, he explains in verse 5 and 11, 5 through 11, what the problem is. It's an apostolic problem. What is the apostolic problem? Okay, the apostolic problem is that the gospel is being attacked. And the way the gospel is being attacked, and Clarence and Anna kind of alluded to this earlier, what they learned at the ACBC conferences, the gospel is being attacked by attacking its messengers. That's always the way the gospel has been attacked. When Jesus came in the gospels, the Pharisees attacked Jesus. They said he was casting out demons because he himself was of Satan. Okay? They made all sorts of things up about him. Well, the same thing happens with Paul. Okay? They slander Paul and they slander Timothy in countless different ways. 
Paul's not attractive. Paul doesn't speak well. Paul's not persuasive. Paul's a difficult person. Paul this, Paul that, Paul the other thing. But essentially what they're doing, because these men have been appointed by the Spirit of God and by Christ, they're Christ's representatives, what they're really doing is they're attacking Christ and they're attacking his gospel. If we can discredit Paul and if we can discredit Timothy, then what we can do is we discredit the gospel and people will say, don't follow them, follow this teaching that we're promoting. And what uh, Paul does throughout First uh, and Second Timothy is he starts to show us essentially what this teaching is about. And this teaching, which is very similar in many churches, is Christ plus something else. If we can say Christ plus something else, then what we do is we water down or we introduce something that distracts people from the perfect word and person and work of Christ in our lives. Okay, and that has always been the battle in the church, and that has always been the battle in Christian homes. All right, if you let the foot in the door and you let something start to become big and you add it and you say it's Christ plus something else, which can be just a part of your lifestyle, pretty soon it's no longer Jesus Christ. Okay, and so we see the apostolic problem that comes up is really an attack on the gospel. And very specifically, the way that is being manifested is these teachers are misusing the word of God. And the Apostle Paul shows in this passage, 5 through 11, and this is just by way of review, that misuse or mishandling of the word of God is a reflection of what we think of Jesus and his work. Our attitudes towards the word of God really reflects our attitudes toward God himself. And even though these men primarily are promoting themselves as teachers, Paul shows that where this is coming from are hearts that have swerved or wandered away from Christ. They've wandered away from the true faith. And they're walking in a direction where these men do not have a good conscience. That part of this is related to their conduct and their desires and doing things that they know are contrary to the person and character of Christ, but they want to keep doing it. Okay? And so, as Dr. MacArthur would say, it's really coming from an impure heart. When we mishandle the Word of God, it's not just a mistake. It's coming from a heart of unbelief that wants to twist the Word so we can do what we want to do. And that, we see, is how Satan handled things in Genesis, and that is what Eve latched onto in Genesis 3. How do we take part of the word and just use part of the word so I can do what I want to do, which is I want to be just like God, and I want to get God out of the picture. Okay? So the apostolic problem, 5 through 11, up front, it's shown in men mishandling the word of God. And it demonstrates Christ Jesus cares how we handle his word. All right, and that leads up to verse 12 and 20, our passage for this evening. After Paul's presented what the problem is, he brings what the remedy is. And that's really the focus of this evening. And if we say what the big picture is or the authorial intent, it's simply this. Christ Jesus cares about his church. He cares about his family. He cares for those he has saved. And how does he care for them? Okay. Does he care for them by giving them big cars, great homes, great careers, uh, making sure that everybody is married to the perfect person and has you know, 2.5 great kids and goes to Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose? 
None of those things, okay? The way that Christ cares for his family is he cares for his family with his love. He cares for his family with the very best. And that very best is his gospel. There's only one way that Christ cares for his family. It's with his gospel. Anything apart from the good news of Jesus Christ is an attack on the gospel. Plain and simple. Any deviation from the gospel, any partial use of the gospel, three quarters of the gospel, but 25% left out, is an attack on the gospel, and it's an attack on the person of Christ. It is life or death. And Paul's point that he's going to make is, well, look, it's because the gospel is what has saved us from our sin. And it's nothing but the gospel that has saved us. That's Romans 1, 16 through 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of, of God for salvation for all men, right? So, um, you know, I mean, that's why Martin Luther got so up in arms and protested and launched the Reformation. It's not that the Catholic Church didn't have the scriptures. It's not that the Roman Catholic Church did not talk about Jesus. It's not that the Roman Catholic Church didn't talk about his crucifixion, crucifixion excuse me, and his resurrection. It was that, it was Christ and the gospel plus church tradition. Christ and the gospel plus what the clergy say. Christ and the gospel plus all these things that you need to do. Okay? And, uh, you know, in our day and age, it can be Christ plus seminary. It can be Christ plus all growing up in a Christian school. It can be Christ plus going to church. That's what our children are going to struggle with, okay? They're going to think being a Christian is about having had a Christian education, going to Sunday school, showing up at church on time, serving in outreach and missions, all right? But brothers and sisters, none of that, if that is not the fruit of the gospel, but if that is an addition to the gospel, then that is an attack on the person of Christ. The remedy for people mishandling the word of God is the gospel itself. It's Christ. And that's where Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, you've got to come back to the gospel. You're backing off and you're backing off because you fail to appreciate the greatness of Christ and the greatness of his work in your life. Timothy, this is all you need. All you need is Christ and his work in your life to stand up to these men, to take back to the church, and to save lives, because that is what saves lives from sinners and false doctrine. That's what the authorial intent is. And for us today, it's the same truth. What is it that allows us to take back our marriages? What is it that allows us to take back our families? What is it that is going to save our in-laws, our relatives, our co-workers. It's not how many great meals we take them out to. It's not how good-looking or how persuasive we are. It's not what an expert I am in apologetics. It's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who's going to save them. It's not you or, you or I. It's not even as I hear some people, oh, you should come to this church. This person is such a great preacher. That person is not going to save them. When you meet people and you hear how they got saved and you hear about Charles Spurgeon, not even knowing the person who was preaching to him and the man who was preaching on that cold, snowy morning where he just went into a local church because he couldn't make it to the church he was at, was a layman 
probably working class, clearly who hadn't been to seminary. And all he did was open up the text, I believe it was from Isaiah, and just go word for word for word and point at Charles Spurgeon and ask whether he indeed had come to the Lamb. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're saved, the one who saved you is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what makes it so special and amazing. And that's what others need to hear. And we also see this when people first get saved. When they first get saved, they're so on fire genuinely for the Lord, they don't care who they tell and how they tell it. They tell everybody. And they let them know they haven't had a seminary education. They haven't had years at church. They're not an elder and a deacon. And yet there's a brazenness with which they share the gospel with others. Why? Because that's what saved them. Okay, and that's not to diminish seminary and Sunday school and all of those different things, but those are not the things that save us. Those are not a substitute for Christ's perfect work. Christ cares for his church with his perfect work, okay? And the care that we need is his. And we see that the rest of the epistle flows out of this. Everything in the epistle flows up to this, Christ's perfect work and care for the church, and everything flows out of this, including the type of worship we're supposed to have the type of leaders that Christ calls for, their character and their nature, how we care for one another. All of these things are to flow out of and represent Christ's perfect work in our lives. If they're not, it's not a reflection of the gospel. Okay? So this is a big picture of the authorial intent so that you can see where this passage fits in in the overall thinking and you might even say the argument of First Timothy. Let's look at the content, okay? So we, we dealt with big picture where this fits in, this passage in the flow of First Timothy. Let's look at the details quickly, okay? When you look at this passage, and I'm gonna break it up into two parts, 12 through 17 and 18 through 20, where you're gonna see obviously a pretty clear break in content. If you just look at the words that are repeated, it gives you an idea about what's important to the Apostle Paul, what's going on in his mind, okay? Now, there are key words here that are only mentioned once and that are really significant to the text, but clearly when words are repeated, it means it's important. It's an emphasis, okay? And when you go through this, you'll see that the name Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ is mentioned four times. The other subject word that is used is the word I. So this is very personal to Paul. It's mentioned I or, or apostle, the Apostle Paul references himself eight times. But when you go through this, what you see is that the Apostle Paul refers to himself. Obviously, this passage is about his relationship with Jesus. Christ Jesus, I, but it's passive. Every verb that happens here, okay, I was formerly a blasphemer. I received mercy. He judged me, okay? The grace of our Lord that overflowed for me. He is the recipient of all the action that is happening in these verses, okay? The action is all flowing from Christ to Paul. This is in contrast to the false teachers. 
the false teachers, it's all about what they're doing, what they are teaching, what they are discussing, what they are debating, what they are speculating. It's all about them. By contrast, this, just by looking at the verbs and that it's passive, this is all about what Christ Jesus has done to Paul. Okay, and we can come, and big picture, you see that very simply, you can say, okay, this is about Christ Jesus' perfect work in the Apostle Paul's life. This is what Christ has done for the Apostle Paul. When we look at the other words that are repeated, you see that grace is repeated twice. Faith or faith words, whether it's unbelief or faithfulness or faith, words related to faith are repeated five times. Mercy is repeated twice and foremost is repeated twice. Okay? And what I'm trying to teach you here is just by, you know, looking at the passage carefully and taking a pencil and, re and, and, and circling the subjects, okay, and circling the words that are repeated, you can get a general idea of what this person is talking about, okay? He's talking about the grace of Christ. He's talking about the faith of believers. He's talking about mercy. He's basically, it should ring some bells to you as we think of Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself or your works, lest any man boast. Okay? Paul is showing us in this passage how Jesus works. Okay? Paul is showing us how he transforms our lives. Paul is showing us where you look and say, well, what's the pattern for me to know? How do I know if my husband is shepherding in a way that honors Christ? How do I know if I'm shepherding my children in a way that honors Christ? How do I know in my workplace if what I'm doing is working in a way that honors Christ? Well, Paul shows us the pattern. He shows us, is grace present? Is faith present? Is mercy present? Are you the biggest person in the picture? Or is this about what Christ has done to you? Okay. Um, and you just think about even in our discussions, as we share and interact with one another, who's the star of the story? If the star of the story is me or us or what we do, that ain't the gospel. Okay. And that's very easy to detect as far as prosperity gospel and all of these other things. Okay. And he shows the Apostle Paul, when you look at the trends and the content, you see these trends and you compare this to the passages that deal with the false teachers, okay? You could see with the false teachers in contrast to Christ's perfect work, okay? The false teachers, they're things that come up over and over again about vain desires, vain doctrine, vain discussion, all the things that are unfaithful to Christ. You see all the character trends, okay? And it goes to desire, doctrine, and discussion. What we say, what we teach and think, and what we want in our hearts. And Paul is showing all of these things are veering away from the gospel. This is contrary to what has happened to the Apostle Paul. And to help us understand, one of the things, the principles that we use is analogia scriptura, the idea of scripture interpreting scripture. Part of this came out of the Reformation, where the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church was saying the only person who can correctly interpret scripture is the Pope and the clergy. 
And Martin Luther said, no, that is not true. A believer who is filled with the Spirit is able to understand what God is saying through his word. Scripture should interpret scripture. It's not the authority or the tradition of the church that should be interpreting scripture. Scripture should be interpreting scripture because God is its author, and it's the Holy Spirit who illumines the word of God. And so some cross-references that allow us to have a look at this focus on Christ's perfect work in our lives. Psalm 23, what we just walked through. David talks about the Lord is his shepherd and the Lord's perfect work in his life. Okay, the Gospels. Jesus contrasts his work in the life of the disciples versus the Pharisees and the scribes, people who knew the word of God well, but they were mishandling it because they had unclean hearts. And Acts 9 and Acts 22, where the apostle Paul explains his testimony of his conversion and his call, how Christ Jesus put him into ministry. Okay, so that's big picture as we sort of look at the words that are repeated in this text and what they say about what this is about. What do they tell us? This is about Christ's perfect work in the Apostle Paul's life. Okay, let's have a look at the verses themselves and see how they fit this big picture about Christ's perfect work in your life and mine and how this is really the standard for every aspect of our lives and for the church itself. Okay, for the leadership to how we care for one another. Verses 12 through 14, that's what it's about. Verses 12 through 14, the Apostle Paul is sharing his testimony of how Christ saved him and how Christ put him in ministry and how Christ made him the leader of one of the apostles, but the apostolic leader of the local church, along with the other apostles. How did Jesus do that? How did the Apostle Paul get this position? How did he get saved, and how was he put in ministry? Okay. Uh, did he go to seminary? Did he go to the Master's Seminary? Did he spend 10 years at Grace Community Church? Did he become a deacon there? Did Dr. MacArthur lay hands on him? Well, he doesn't mention any of those things, does he? Okay. In fact, he starts at the very beginning. It's like a grace sandwich, okay? Not Grace Community Church, a grace sandwich. He starts with Christ's work of grace in verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. Literally in the Greek, I thank him is I have grace. Okay, I have grace. And the way he uses it means I have gratitude. And the word for gratitude is the same word for grace. Gratitude is the right response to grace. Okay. In other words, what he's saying is, I have received grace from Christ. That is what fills my heart and my life. It starts not with his work. It starts with what Christ has given him. And Christ is referred to the one who has given him strength. So what has Paul received? Well, Paul has received gratitude. Gratitude for Christ's perfect work in his life. He has received strength. The strength that he has for ministry does not come from his education or learning or experience. It doesn't come from his natural abilities like the false teachers or his stamina. His strength has come from Christ. And he refers to Jesus as the one who gives me strength. That's worth stopping there for every aspect of our life. I know there's a number of mothers who are out there, okay? Sleep deprived, okay? 
and when we are tired and we haven't had an awful lot of sleep and life is hard, depression and discouragement can come in. And the feeling like, I just can't be a good mother or I can't be a good father, I can't do it, I haven't had enough sleep, I'm stretched thin. And yet what the Apostle Paul does, which is so beautiful, he shows that his strength for ministry where he was whipped multiple times, he was placed in jail, he was hungry, he was shipwrecked. The strength that carried him through as a witness came from Christ. It didn't come from the natural things in this world. That's our hope. And that's the hope is Christ's perfect work in his life. And from that strength and from that grace, he connects it with faith and service in the ministry. Diakonia, being a deacon, waiting on tables. Where did this all come from? It all came from Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the one who appointed him to service. Why was he in service? Why was he in ministry? You could take away all of the Apostle Paul's degrees. You could throw him out of every church. It did not matter. How was he able to stand up against all that ugliness and opposition? And this is an encouragement to Timothy. They could slam him on his talent, on his preaching any day of the week. It did not matter. It's Christ who had appointed him to serve us. Mothers, when you struggle, who is it who appointed you to be a mother of that child, no matter how bad those children are or no matter how difficult they are? It's Christ who's appointed you to serve us. Husbands, leaders of the home, well, I didn't go to seminary. Well, I don't know the body. Hey, Christ has appointed you to serve us. He's given you the strength. He's called you. If you are a child of God, if you've been saved, he's appointed you for service. And the one who stands behind you to simply open a Bible and pray for your wife and lead in the home, it's Christ. That is where your confidence is. And the moment you start to go down the path of, I don't have a seminary education, or I haven't been trained, or I, I, Satan's got you. Because it's not the gospel that is your strength, and it's not Christ that's your strength, it's you. And if it's going to be based on you, you're going to have good days and bad days, and you're going to fail. Dr. MacArthur used to say repeatedly, if my salvation depended on me, I would lose my salvation day after day after day. Our hope is that it is Christ who has appointed us into ministry and stands behind us. In that first verse where he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. That verse, the way it's worded in the language in the Greek, can be difficult to understand. It can be misunderstood. The Apostle Paul is not saying here that Jesus appointed me because I was such a great servant and I was faithful. That's not what he's saying. When you go to 1 Corinthians 7.25, uh, the Apostle Paul makes the point that it is the mercy of the Lord that has made him faithful. The mercy of the Lord, the steadfast love of God, Christ's love in his life and his perfect work, it's the grace of the Lord that gives us faith. It's the grace of the Lord that makes us faithful. You have been saved by grace through faith, okay? The Catholic Church reverses that. You've got to work up the faith, prosperity gospel. You've got to just believe, and then it's all going to happen for you. And what we do is we toss Christ out, and we make ourselves the catalyst for change. For the Apostle Paul, the catalyst for change was Christ showing up in his life. And verse 13 shows that. Verse 13, he shows what he was before. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. 
He was an opponent, an unfaithful opponent, who opposed Christ and the gospel. And by the end of that verse, he shows you what he was transformed into. Okay? But I received mercy. He became the recipient of mercy. He ultimately becomes a faithful servant. How does Paul go from being an unfaithful opponent to becoming a faithful servant? It's not a prayer he said, okay? It's not serving in the local church. It's not a seminary degree. It's because Christ stepped into his life on the road to Damascus, and he showed him mercy or merciful love. Merciful love, steadfast love, compassion for someone who is ensnared in sin. Okay? And so Paul is showing the perfect work that transformed him, the grace that he received. The grace he received is Christ stepped in and showed him merciful love. And he said, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. This can be misunderstood. Paul is not coming and saying, because I didn't know better, Jesus cut me a break. We tend to interpret that into the passage because that's the excuse we frequently use. You know, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that excuse where there is sin that is damaged, a marriage, a family, or a church, and you approach the person and say, look, this is just not right. And the response that you get back from the person is, well, I didn't know any better. As if somehow if you didn't know okay, that talking to another woman who's not your wife, okay, somehow that you didn't know to be in a, in, a, in a room with a closed door where there's no windows with another woman, somehow you didn't know, okay, uh, that demeaning comments or comments about your marriage hurt your wife. Yeah, because you didn't know or you hadn't read that passage in the Bible, okay, that says you're to love your wife and wash her with the word, you didn't know somehow that makes you less culpable. That's blame shifting, brothers and sisters, okay? Ignorance that comes from unbelief, the Apostle Paul shows in Romans chapter one, is a rebellious heart that is in denial of Christ. Yes, indeed, God makes a distinction in the Old Testament between high-handed sin, when someone has explicitly come to you and said, this is sin, don't do it, and you go and do it. That is called high-handed sin. That's a prideful heart. The Lord is going to punish you worse for that. Make no mistake. When I come and tell my children, don't do this, and they intentionally look at me and they go and do it, okay, the discipline and correction they are going to receive is going to be greater, all right, than if they sin and they did it ignorantly and I didn't explicitly tell them five minutes before. But as I tell my children, just because you didn't know that you weren't supposed to cross the street when there were cars going by, doesn't negate what happens to you when you get hit by a car. Telling the person who hit you in the car, well, I didn't know any better, doesn't mitigate or diminish the consequences of your action. Okay, so Paul's not here saying he showed me mercy because I wasn't as bad as these other guys. I did it because I didn't know any better. No, what he's coming and saying is I was ensnared. I didn't know Jesus. I was living in opposition to him. I was living in unbelief. I was living in darkness. 
because I was acting ignorantly in unbelief, I needed his mercy to save me. If Christ didn't have compassion and step into my life because I was so ensnared in my own darkness, I would still be a blasphemer, a destructive person, a destroyer, and I'd still be out there killing Christians. Okay? What is it that changed his life? It was Christ Jesus' mercy, his compassion for sinners. And finally, verse 14, okay, Christ's perfect work. What is the fruit of Christ's perfect work? Christ's perfect work always unites us with Christ. Okay, any teaching that says otherwise is not of the gospel. Pray this way and you'll get the big house. Pray this way and your cancer is going to go away. If it doesn't unite you with the person of Christ, the word of Christ, and the work of Christ, if it's not bringing you together, then it's not of Christ, because that's how Christ loves us. When you love someone, you want to be together with them all the time. That is Christ's perfect love for you. That's what all of this is about till he comes back. It's bringing you closer and closer and closer and closer to him so that you can experience his love to the fullest. That's the way Christ always worked. And, and that's what Paul's referring to here in verse 14 when he talks about the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And when he uses that term in Christ Jesus, he's talking about our union with Christ, together with Christ. And the fruit of that and the reason Jesus desires that for you and he'll stop at nothing, including disciplining us, is because his desire is that faith and love would abound in our life and that our cup would run over with his grace. Okay? And so Paul is showing us, look, this is how I became a gospel minister. This is how I got saved. And what's worth noting is he's making the point, the gospel didn't just save me. The gospel qualified me for service. And the gospel put me to work for Jesus Christ. You don't just get saved and then you sit back. Can't serve. I just got saved. Can't do this. I'm a new believer. Can't do this. I, I'm not gifted in that way. No way. Look at the Apostle Paul. He starts ministering right away under the power of the Holy Spirit. And he edifies the local church. And they are so encouraged by what he's done in their life. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the reasons we need to start sharing the gospel with others. Because when new believers come in and their lives are just filled with the Spirit and all they know is the gospel, they do need the discipleship we have to give. They do need to be taught. They do need to be matured. But those new babies in the faith who are just on fire for the Lord and all they want is the milk, the milk, the milk, the milk, the milk, they bring us back to the gospel and they have something to contribute to the local church. Well, in verse 15, Paul summarizes all of this work in his life, including what qualified him for leadership and ministry. And think about that, guys, as we think about what is it that qualifies men for leadership? It's the gospel. It's Christ Jesus' perfect work in your life. It's the presence of Christ in your life. So that when people interact with you and the decisions you make, it's Christ that they encounter. Well, Paul makes this point. He shows that all of this that has happened to him, verse 15, the summary, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Part of that salvation is putting unworthy sinners 
not only into the family, but to use them in ministry and use them to serve and use them to lead in the church because they are testimonies for what saves us. And they're testimonies of the beauty and goodness of who Jesus Christ is. And then what Paul does in verse 16 through 17, okay, because he takes this summation, look, this is what's happened to me, verse 12 through 14, Christ's perfect work in my life. Verse 15, this is the gospel, okay? 16 to 17, he goes on to show, this is true not just for me, this is true for everyone in the church. Okay, he applies it to everybody in the church. He says in verse 16, but I receive mercy for this reason. On account of this, literally, on this account, what's the reason? That in me is the foremost of sinners. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. If Christ can do this for me, he can do this for you. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That word example, hupotupos, or type, okay? It means that, guess what? What happened in the Apostle Paul's life is not an exception. Catholic Church, you've got the super saints. You've got the Apostle Paul. You've got Mother Teresa. You may never be like them, but it's good to know that there are certain people who are champions of the faith, not with Paul. Paul's coming and saying, look, the reason I'm sharing this with you is I'm the example of what Christ is doing in your life. Christ is making you to become like me. He's telling Timothy this, to give Timothy strength and encouragement. Timothy, you feel you're young. You feel you're not talented like me. You feel you haven't seen the Lord like me. You feel that you're not gifted in all the ways that I'm gifted, or people don't respect you in the way they respect me. Doesn't matter. It's Christ's perfect work in your life, Timothy, that is making you just like me in the same way he's making me just like Christ. Imitate your leaders as they imitate Christ, okay? If your leaders aren't imitating Christ, you better not be imitating them and you better find another church. He's encouraging Timothy and he's saying, this gospel doesn't just apply to super apostles. It applies to every aspect of the church and every person in the church. It is the example and the type, it is what God is making us. And verse 17, he closes with a praise to the Lord, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. And we see where the gospel takes us. The gospel starts with the grace of Christ. It goes to his perfect work in our lives. And it ends with our lives praising God for the grace he has given us. That's the life of Jesus, from death to resurrection. That was the Apostle Paul's life, from sinner to saint. Brothers and sisters, that's what is to care for the church. How does Jesus care for the church? It's his perfect work in our lives, his mercy in our lives, his presence in our lives, his love in our lives that grows us and in and through us, ministers the gospel to others. That was the model. That's what happened. He saved Paul. He transformed Paul. And it's Paul ministering to others and giving his life to others and sharing the gospel with others that is filling them with the good news of the gospel. 
That's the way it was then, brothers and sisters. That's the way that church is to be now. And there's room for nothing else. What do we do with this? Okay, this is Christ Jesus' perfect work of grace for sinners. All right, this is the remedy for what's wrong with every church, every marriage, every family, every workplace. Paul's saying it's one thing, one thing alone, Timothy. It's Christ Jesus. And this is meant, notice what he says, uh, let's see, in verse 16. This is an example to those who were or who are about to believe or who will believe in him for eternal life. That word believe, it means those who have confidence in Christ. It's the idea of what it means to be a Christian is to have confidence in Christ and his perfect work in our lives. It means we trust and say, if Jesus is going to say it, he's going to say it better than I'm going to say it. His way is better than my way. If something is going to happen, if Jesus does it or it's done his way, that's better than every other way that is being proposed. So we're stopping and asking the question, where is our confidence? Do we trust in Christ's work in our lives? When we're struggling with a coworker or a friend or a spouse who is disappointing us, do we trust in Christ's perfect work? Or do we say, okay, if this person would just get their act together, everything would be okay. Brad Bigney addressed that in his workshop on marriage at the ACBC conference, and I encourage you to listen to it. He made the point that when couples get together, the focus is on our desires. The focus is on us. And the focus is also on the other person's flaws. If this other person just got rid of those flaws, our marriage would be totally better. But what does that show, brothers and sisters? Christ is nowhere in the picture. We don't believe in his perfect work. We believe he might be able to get you a ticket to heaven, but we don't believe he's going to make my spouse into his image. We don't believe he's going to make me into his image. Do we ever stop and consider, if I was more like Jesus, maybe this problem or this difficult coworker or these difficult people in my lives would not be a problem. Because for Jesus, they were not problems. They were opportunities for ministry to show love and mercy and compassion. And that was his attitude to the disciples. And that was his attitude to everyone who came into his life, including Pontius Pilate, the man who greed led him to be crucified. Okay. I'll try and tie this up. Thank you for bearing with me. How do we apply this? Okay, Paul goes from verses 11 through 17 to show us that the remedy is Christ's perfect work. That is what the church needs. We need Christ's perfect work, okay, for every aspect of our lives. Well, how do we apply this? Okay, and that's what verse 18 and 20 is about. He comes to verse 18 and 20 and is telling Timothy, look, this is your problem in the local church. They don't respect Christ's perfect work. That's it. If the false teachers respected Jesus, they would respect his work. If they respected his work, they would respect his word. But they don't. So instead, they're mishandling his word, and they're disobeying his word in their conduct, and they're coming up with their own variations where they take a portion of the gospel, and they're filling the rest 
with all their discussions and vain speculations and debates, and it's all about them, okay? When we mishandle Christ's word, what does that say about what we think of Jesus, okay? When someone comes to you and you share something with them, and they go and they tell it different to someone else, and you hear back, well, I didn't say that. Do you get offended? More often than not, you do. Why? Because it shows that that person had a different agenda and did not respect you, okay? Brothers and sisters, the problem in church and the problem in our lives is we don't respect Christ, we don't respect his work, and therefore we ignore his word. It always happens in that order, okay? And the remedy, brothers and sisters, is to come back to Christ and to see and appreciate in our salvation what he has done. And so the remedy, 18 through 20, he, the Apostle Paul comes back again and said, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. He brings him back to the charge that he said at the beginning. What, how do we apply this? Two things, remain and reject. We stand firm in the gospel. Paul says that over and over and over again. Stand firm in Christ. Don't back off. Stand on the rock. Stand on Christ's word. Number one, don't give way. Don't compromise. Don't say, okay, maybe you have a point. Or give a little way here, a little way there. You stand firm in the gospel. Ephesians 6, right? You stand firm. But the second thing is you reject anything apart from Christ Jesus' perfect work. Anything apart from the gospel. It should have no place in our lives. It should have no place in the church. It should have no place in our marriage. It should have no place in our parenting. Okay, and that's verse 18. This charge I entrust you. Wage the warfare, the good warfare. It's a battle. We are engaged in a spiritual warfare. And that warfare is for the name of Christ and for his grace in our lives. Brothers and sisters, if we ignore Christ's perfect work, what we're really rejecting is his grace, his unmerited favor, his mercy in our lives. And instead, like Eve, we're saying, I can do a better job myself. Okay, how do we do this? How are we to remain and stand and reject? The Apostle Paul tells Timothy in verse 19, by holding faith and a good conscience. Holding faith, treasuring, guarding the gospel, having your confidence in Christ, and let nothing shake that, highly esteem, embrace Christ himself, okay? And then second, a good conscience that our behavior is consistent with Christ. Would Christ be pleased and honored with that? And the contrast and what's being rejected, verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander. The Apostle Paul is showing here, and it was alluded in the sharing earlier, okay, that the remedy, part of the remedy, brothers and sisters, is booting out of your life and the church anything that is contrary to the person and work of Christ. There is no room for it. It's people in the church who are not embracing the perfect work of Christ and have another agenda or are promoting another agenda. Prosperity gospel, whatever it is, it's there, okay? Christ plus, okay? Um, the word of God plus these other things. All of those things, look. The Apostle Paul is saying, this is love. Put them out of the church. Why is it love? Because they're on a path. Anything apart from the work of Christ is going to damn them to hell. Only Jesus saves. Only his mercy saves. He's the only one who can save you. You can't save yourself. 
So you go down this path, you're destroying yourself. You know, why would you let that into the house? I think the example that I tell Julie and I tell the boys, okay, there's a discretion about who we let into the house. I tell the boys, okay, sometimes the doorbell rings. I say, go and have a look and look out the front door and see who it is at the front door. If you don't know them, don't let them in. Okay? And don't talk to strangers who are out there on the front porch. If you don't know them, don't have anything to do. Don't let them into the house because you have no idea what they're going to do if you don't know them. To Christians, if you don't know that this is coming from Christ, you need to pause and you need to step back. Okay? And if you get the feeling this isn't consistent with the good news of Jesus Christ, that should prompt you to ask some more questions and to probe a little bit and to consider, okay, does this have any place in the church? Our discussions with one another, when we're talking with one another, when stuff comes up, we've got to ask ourselves, is what I'm saying a reflection of the perfect work of Christ? Does it honor him? Does it show mercy? Or is it, ah, if these people would just get their act together, they would be so much further ahead. Why can't they just cut this off? Why can't they just do it? Well, you know, brothers and sisters, that's totally contrary to the gospel. Because what saved Paul was Christ's mercy. And so we can say when someone's ensnared in sin, look, if only, if only Christ was bigger in their life, let's pray for this person, that Christ's mercy, which is being showed to them, would be embraced. If only they would receive Christ's word and his ministry in their life, in his time and in his way. If only that they would have confidence in Christ, that Christ could handle this better than they can. Okay. I want to bring this to a personal level. It's what we learned this week at the ACBC conference. Okay. How do we apply this in our lives? Number one, like Paul, Gratitude for Christ's perfect work in us. Are we thankful and are we amazed at what Christ has done? We all need to go back and think about what our lives were like before we were saved. We all need to get out our applications for membership and read what we were like before Jesus came into our lives. Sometimes we even need to be reminded of some of the sins that happened in our lives and said, so that was me. But it's not me anymore because of Christ's mercy and grace in my life. And I'll tell you, there are moments in my life where I think back of things, of people I said unkind things to, of people I disrespected, of people I didn't treat well because I was too busy or I had an agenda or whatever, and it grieves me and it breaks my heart. And I wish I could go back in time and change that. But I know that the Lord has allowed those things to happen so that I can be on my knees and say to Jesus, thank you that the cross is sufficient. Thank you that you bore the shame. That was me. The only thing that's changed is you and my life. And the moment you're out of my life, that's me. Christ's perfect work. Gratitude for Christ's perfect work in us. Brothers and sisters, when we're grateful for what Christ has done for the chief among sinners, we're a lot less judgmental. We're far more gracious with others. We're kinder. We show mercy. We are good Samaritans. Why? Because Christ is big in our lives and pride is not, okay? 
Gratitude for Christ's perfect work in us, application. Number two, faith and hope in Christ's perfect work in us. Faith and hope in Christ's perfect work. That our confidence is really in Christ. That our hope is in Christ. That, hey, I'm not going to be able to pull it together. But if Christ is present in my life, in his time and his way, he's going to make all things well. And to have faith and hope in Christ, very specifically, what does it look like? It looks like putting off our old desires and thoughts and ways and putting on Christ Jesus, his desires and thoughts and ways. Now, I want to hit this home and I'll tie up with this. And thank you for bearing with me. Charging people not to teach anything other than the gospel is not only brothers and sisters for the church. It is. That is a gospel love, stepping up to people and saying, look, brother, let me pull you aside. And just the sorts of things that are coming out of your mouth, they're not edifying and encouraging, not pointing to Christ. That's a gospel call for all of us, guys. All of us, not just your pastor. Paul's saying that's all of us. There's no tolerance for those things. That's a loving thing to do for someone, not harsh. We don't want to do it because we feel uncomfortable, okay? But if you love a person, and they've got food on the teeth, you're going to tell them. If you love a person and they're heading for a car crash, you're going to tell them. You're going to tell them. But brothers and sisters, it's our own lives too. When we think thoughts that are contrary to the gospel, we need to check ourselves and correct ourselves with the gospel and say there's no room for that. Should have, would have, could have. If only I'd done A, B, C, and D, this would have been so much better so contrary to the gospel, right? So much of the discouragement we have, so contrary to the gospel, blame shifting, so contrary to the gospel. Well, we're here because A, B, C, D, and E did this. So contrary to the gospel. Take some time to think about things you've been discouraged about over the last week. Look at the desires behind it. Look at your thoughts behind it. Look at your ways and be intentional 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5, be intentional about removing, by Christ's command, any thought or desire that is contrary to Christ's perfect work in your life, including beating yourself up over your sin after you've confessed to the Lord. If you've repented, you've taken it to the Lord. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's time to be obedient to Christ and move forward in your life, okay? We need to be vigilant. People who, by the power of the Spirit, put off thoughts that are contrary to the gospel, those are the people who, in love, show mercy to others, and they are able to correct others in a gentle and kind and gracious way. Why? Because Christ has already done it in their lives, all right? And Brothers and sisters, I can tell, let me tell you, I can tell people who don't confess their sins to the Lord, not because I can read your mind. Why? Because they feel uncomfortable in confessing their sins to others. If you've confessed your sin to the Lord and said, Lord, look, man, I'm a mess. I'm a chief among sinners, and I am unworthy of your favor. You're not a person who gets together in a small group and, and has a hard time saying, look, I blew it. When you haven't confessed it to Christ, you're covering it up because you don't want anybody else to know. Okay? Similarly, 
if Christ has turned your life and you're repentant, you said, that's not part of my life anymore. And Christ is all there is to my life. And I trust him to make things right. When that's true privately with the Lord, that is going to flush out in your ministry. And it's going to show compassion to others who are struggling in sin to say, look, the only reason I was able to get past this is because Christ had mercy on me. Brother, what you need, you need more of Jesus and less of you. Okay. Christ cares for his church and he shows love and compassion through his perfect work, through his death on the cross and his resurrection and through the gospel. And that, brothers and sisters, is our great hope that provides change and that transforms us into the image of Christ and fills our life to overflowing with his faith and his love. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, anything else, Timothy, get rid of it in your life and in the church. And when you go to the end of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 4 and 6, you see that this is exactly the advice that Paul gives to Timothy. He goes blow by blow about how Timothy is to get rid of these things in his life and to take every thought captive for the perfect work of Christ. All right, thank you for bearing with me, okay? And, uh, you know, finally, when that, when Christ is big in our life, we don't have a problem sharing him with other people. And we don't have a problem serving in ministry because it's not about us. It's about Christ's perfect work. JC, I'm going to hand it back to you. Thank you all for allowing me to take this time. Okay. Uh, thank you, Pastor Mark, um, for uh, teaching us uh, from 1 Timothy 12 to 20. And uh, uh, Kat and I were really encouraged by, by the teaching. Uh, thank you, Pastor Mark. Um, so before we close in prayer, uh, I would like to uh, just uh, give some closing announcements. So if you are new here in our Bible study, we uh, welcome you. Uh, we are glad that you can join us tonight. And if you would like more information about our church or about the gospel uh, or about Logos, um, just please reach out to uh, Teddy Yu or to Naomi Yu. Um, I'm gonna po I'm gonna put their email um, in the chat channel. All right. Um, and um, speaking of proclaiming the uh, the gospel. Uh, every Sunday in our church, we proclaim the gospel. And this Sunday uh, is something special. Uh, we are going to, a, we're going to have a baptism service. Um, it, the, it's going to be slightly modified. Uh, we are going to have it outdoors. And uh, the indoor service will still be open and we will stream the, um, uh, the, the, the sermon there. So uh, with that, um, we would like to ask to RSVP so that we could plan ahead uh, to know how many chairs we need to set up outdoors. And um, yeah, and if you have any questions, uh, please let me know. Or you could uh, reach out to um, uh, Kevin Al as well. Um, I just posted the RSVP form. So just click that link and um, let us know. Uh, if you would like to attend outdoors or indoors, but we encourage you to go outdoors. Uh, but we understand if you need to go indoors, if you have children 
or the air quality is not good for you, um, uh, we totally understand. Uh, membership, if you are interested to learn more about um, what the Bible says about uh, Christian membership uh, at the local church, uh, we are here, um, or if you are looking to become a member of our church, uh, we are planning to have uh, a next round of membership classes. And if you are interested, uh, please email membership at lbcsj.com. Again, I'm going to post uh, the email uh, in the uh, chat panel. And for next week, we are scheduled to have our sharing and prayer time uh, with our discipleship group. Uh, our next large group meeting will be the following Thursday, uh, October 22. And if you are not part of a discipleship group, uh, please reach out to me or to Teddy Yu. And you have uh, Teddy's email there. Um, finally, uh, this is the first time we're going to announce this. Um, as you all know, we've canceled, uh, or maybe it wasn't announced officially yet, but um, because of COVID-19 and the wildfires, uh, the, the retreat this year uh, has been uh, canceled but we trust in we, we trust god that he provides and so we uh, and pray for this um we are planning to have the retreat in uh january of next year but we are combining it with the anniversary banquet so believe it or not lbcsj uh, lighthouse san jose will be 10 years uh, we'll be celebrating 10 years uh so with that um we would need your help and uh First of all, to pray for the planning, for the place. With all the restrictions happening, uh, we're doing our best to find a location. Uh, but we would like to uh, know the head count. So who are willing to probably check in uh, to, uh, or to stay overnight in a hotel. So um, I'm going to post more information in the Facebook members page. But uh, here's a link. It's sort of like a soft RSVP so that we, it would help the events team to plan ahead uh, of how many rooms we could rent out in the hotel. Um, so we're looking at probably at Napa or Monterey or maybe in uh, the East Bay. So please pray for, um, for this. Um, yeah, so I think that's it for the announcements. Um, if there is nothing else, um, am I forgetting anything else, Tim? Or I think... I think that's it. All right. Okay. So um, um, I'll close in a word of prayer. All right, let's pray. Lord, oh, dear Lord, we are so thankful for the power of your word that it feeds our mind and it nourishes our spirit and soul. Uh, we thank you for uh, Pastor Mark's teaching tonight, uh, reminding us of the gospel-centered charge and calling of our church, uh, not only to our leaders, but also to us members, as we proclaim the true gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives. Uh, indeed, uh, no human mind could have ever invented the gospel. Uh, with your eternal grace, Jesus is both the gospel's messenger and its message. And Lord, that, uh, that you live here on earth through your infinite compassion that your life went through insult, suffering, and death, that we may be redeemed and freed from our sins. And we are so eternally thankful uh, for you, O Lord Jesus, 
who not only saves us, but also strengthens us in our walk. May you continue to strengthen our faith, strengthen our steadfastness, and our love for you so that we can carry out the calling you've given to us. And as we leave this Zoom call tonight, may we not just be faithful hearers of the word, but also doers of your word uh, with the motivation to please you and to glorify you, uh, trusting in your steadfast love and grace that you have lavishly bestowed upon us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.